So uh, I'm, a, I'm a father of four sons. I have four grandchildren as well. Uh, I love kids. Great. I think I should have gone straight to the grandkids. Not spent with the children. But, uh, so here we're to talk about the amazing evidences for a young universe. Last night I was in Coleman, the night before in High River, and uh, we had some great uh, services, great uh, events, talks, and uh, so tonight I'm, I'm blessed to be in this place. I think it's Okotoks? Okotoks. Okotoks? Is that right? Okay, good. So uh, we're going to talk about why you know, we believe at Creation Ministries International that the Bible is correct as the Word of God and that science actually backs that up. You know, the prevalence today is that, you know, we have actually two models of origins. One is the, the biblical one, which was prevalent all the way from Judeo-Christian history all the way up till recently. In fact, this, the biblical account of history was what was taught in universities because they were preparing uh, people for ministry, such as Cambridge and Oxford. They were, this is what was taught of the history of the world. However, that's not what is taught today. Now we're taught that about 13.8 billion years ago, first it was nothing, then became something, and then that something blew up, and here we are today talking about that. A lot of that has to be taken on faith. You know, we're told everywhere we go. We're told in the uh, media, everywhere, the books you read, the novels you, you, you read, and whether you go into the university classroom or the high school, or Sesame Street, or, you know, uh, even um, Sesame Street popping up there, yes. So, wherever you go, we're told that there were things that lived and died millions of years ago. I mean, dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. This is what we're told. However, the Bible does not give us millions of years to work with. It never has. And um, some people have tried to fit the alleged millions and billions of years into the Genesis account with varying degrees of, of uh, success. And I would say there's no success in there. Because some people just simply abandon Genesis and say, well, it isn't telling us any history at all. It's all metaphorical. For example, N.T. Wright, a very well-respected theologian, he considered Genesis just poetic. Others who go into uh, universities and try to engage uh, you know, university crowd telling them that God created the universe, such as William Lane Craig and Hugh Ross, they camp their hat on the Big Bang. Uh, this is God's origin of the universe. He just spoke the Big Bang into being and that reveals God's creative agency. But we don't believe that that's the case. In fact, if there's anything that's falling apart is the Big Bang theory itself, simply because it has so many uh, scientific flaws with it. For example, you've heard of multiverse. Multiverse is an attempt to repair the Big Bang because the Big Bang just can't work. It just doesn't work. It's, it's known, but uh, people hang on to it. Now, when I go across Canada to talk, talk to some people, uh, some Christians want to not talk about this at all. And there is a danger of not preparing young people to engage in this subject. And so if someone's not prepared for this, what will happen, of course, is that when they encounter this in a university setting or wherever, and they're not prepared, it's going to be a shock to them. And many of them abandon faith. Now here's an example, a National Post uh, recently put out a woman who grew up Baptist who eventually became a Muslim. And uh, she went to McMaster University. Just, so I'm just truncating the story here, but, um, what she's saying that contrary to many young people who leave faith and, and abandon become atheistic or agnostic, she went the other way around. She became a Muslim. 
What had happened to her? Well, she actually grew up Baptist. And she was saying that when she was, she had questions about dinosaurs and about evolution, and when she brought it to the Bible scholars, they dismissed her comment. And so she became agnostic. When she went to university, she, she met a Muslim man and she convinced her, he convinced her to become a Muslim and that's what she is today. How ironic. The church that needs to prepare its young people, the generation, you know, for upcoming challenges as in some cases got their head in the sand. And uh, that's not right. We have to take these things head on and not simply hope that nobody will notice that, you know, we believe the Bible tells us about a 6,000 year old universe. For many people, that is kind of like the flat earth, right? How many people believe in the flat earth? Don't put up your hand if you do, okay? We do not. We have no, this is an absurd idea. In fact, some of our speakers in the state actually have been accosted by the flat earthers and uh, trying to uh, accost them while they're giving conferences. So I speak part-time for Creation Ministries International about five years now. And I'm gonna ask the stewards to get ready for the clipboards. Okay, and um, so we are an apologetics and information ministry focusing on the creation evolution question. The idea is to uphold the authority of the Bible as the word of God, something that you can trust God at his word. You can trust God at his word. The same way that Jesus Christ trusted the Old Testament and the apostles did too, we should also be doing that today. But of course, we got the challenge of the evolutionary hypothesis. So we have PhD scientists on staff. They're largely in the United States, and we also are in Australia, England, and in seven countries around the world. The material, we have quite a number of articles downstairs as resources that you can buy. These are the scientists who actually write these materials. I'm a, a generalist speaker. I get to talk in churches and sort of bring it to the lay people, as it were. So I'm going to ask if you're interested in receiving our newsletter, uh, periodic, what we call Infobyte, you just put your name and email address in English, not Arabic. Sometimes that's what it looks like, okay? And uh, you'll get that in a number of weeks. Now when it comes to the whole question of nature, so for example we have here, we look at the hummingbird and the incredible complexity. I've been in aviation for over 42 years. And I can tell you that any aerodynamicist looking at this would marvel at the machinery here. It's an organic machine that just, you know, look at how fast its wings beat and its heart goes. I mean, it's mind-boggling, hovering, sipping, etc. And it's self-repairing, it's reproducing. It's an incredible machine which begs the question of who made this? Was it all by accident? It's hard to believe that you can have an incredibly complex thing by accident. So many people would accept that this speaks of intelligence and great intelligence. Even Anthony Flew, a very ardent atheist, stepped away from his atheist position because he looked at the design argument. He could not accept that all this intricate design is a result of a whole bunch of fortuitous accidents. And he would be right. That, that says that. But we also have this little thing called the pesky Big Bang and evolution. Okay. And um, the hypothesis is, and I'm calling it a hypothesis because this is just something that you can never actually test. You can't put it in a laboratory. I was speaking to a professor at the University of Illinois, Wisconsin, and I said, you know, some people say cosmology, the study of the cosmos, is not really a science. 
he tended to agree because there's no way you could put any of your uh, explanations to the test. It's just observation and we come up with, people come up with ideas how they think it might have happened, right? But the reason why the Big Bang exists is because a number of years ago, using the Hubble telescope, they realized the universe is expanding. Well, if it's expanding going forward, then it must have been contracting going uh, smaller into the past. And so, actually the term the Big Bang was actually meant as a joke. A number of years ago, uh, uh, I think Fred Hoyle was on the um, interview. Now, the idea before was the steady state. The universe always existed. And when Fred Hoyle was presented with this idea of somehow there was an initial explosion to call it all, he, mean, he said, well, you mean like some kind of a Big Bang? He meant it as a joke, but it stuck. And so it's referred to as a Big Bang Theory today. And of course, we live with that. But it's an attempt to explain everything in the entire universe through purely natural processes. That's what the Big Bang's all about. Of course, God has no place in this cosmology. So, what do the, you know, when you look, I look at your mountains here and I see all these strata in your rocks, such as the Grand Canyon, a good example of all the strata. We see in there fossils. All kinds of fossils, dinosaurs, mammals, birds, you know, sea creatures, etc. What is the story that all of those fossils are telling us? Well, isn't it one of pain and death and disease and suffering and extinction and things eating each other? Isn't that true? Yes, it is true. These things are obviously dead, so it must have been death in them, and their death was not obviously not uh, welcome on their part, right? So is it true that all these things died out? Of course. But how long did it take for all of these fossils and these layers to accumulate? That is the question we're going to be looking at today. Did it take billions of years? Or could it have happened in a much shorter period of time, within the biblical time frame? We suggest that that is a possibility. You know, the Bible gives us a, a chronology. Basically, the age is based on the genealogies. You know, when, Noah, sorry, when Adam was 130 years old, he begat Seth. And then Seth begat uh, another, his, his son, etc., etc. That's how we get the age by the genealogy. And it's very well chronicled in the scripture of the Old Testament. So that gives us the 6,000 years. Of course, the six days is very explicit. A plain reading of that would tell us it was six days. These seem to be normal 24-hour periods. And of course, you also have the global flood. Now, oftentimes people miscomprehend uh, the enormity of the flood. People ask questions about, what about Garden of Eden? Where, where, is, where is the Garden of Eden? Well, there's no more a Garden of Eden because the global flood rearranged everything. It moved continents around. It pushed up mountains. It sunk, uh, you know, continent plates into the uh, into the core of the earth. It rearranged everything. So forget looking for the Garden of Eden. There's nowhere to be found. Okay. So from the plain reading of Scripture, it seems that it was 6,000 years ago, six days, and there was a global flood about 4,500 years ago. Remember that time is going to come up. 4,500 years ago, there was a global flood. Now, of course, that flies in the face of many, you know, people who think it's ooh, millions and billions of years. In fact, this is not lost on also on Bible scholars. Gleason Archer, a well-known and respected biblical scholar in the evangelical tradition, wrote this. He says, from a superficial reading of Genesis 1, the impression would seem to be that the entire creative process took place in six 24-hour days. 
If this was the true intent of the Hebrew author, this seems to run counter to modern scientific research, which indicates that the planet Earth was created several billion years ago. So if an evangelical Bible scholar is wrestling with this issue, of course the rest of the ordinary Christians are going to have issues as well. And it certainly doesn't help when you have uh, Christian apologists going to university saying, we accept evolution. Okay, well, i got a little problem here because just what is it? Notice the way he phrases this. If this was the true intent of the, of the Hebrew author, you mean there's some doubt that that's what they actually meant? You got to, we don't have time for it, but Jesus actually accepted what those Hebrew authors wrote, in this particular case, Moses. He accepted it as it was written. And so did the apostles as it was written. There was no concept in the, in the Hebrew mind of, of evolution in millions and billions of years. So what is being proposed is running counter to historical Christianity. And it's not a small thing. But we can ask the question, all right, so maybe God used six days and maybe God used evolution. What's the difference? In fact, that is a question that's often asked by people. You know, what does it matter if God created things in six days, 6,000 years ago, if he used the process of evolution? I simply believe the gospel, that's what we should teach. All this other creation evolution stuff, it's just clouding things up and getting people confused and upset, etc. Why don't you just stick to the gospel? That's a valid question, and you need to know the answer to that one. So, because many Christians have accepted evolution, why don't you? Well, I suggest the big issue is death. The big issue is really death. I was at a uh, birthday, uh, an 80-year-old woman, very active and spry, she wanted to put on a birthday party for her 50-year-old son, whom she actually had donated a kidney to. Right? And so this was very important to her. And this was, she loved to do this social thing. Her son was saying, eh, I just want something just small. No, no, we're having 65 people. Catered, lunch, etc. It was great, it was wonderful. And we sang a song, and at the end she dropped dead. Literally. She just got up on the floor, she was dead. Of course, all of us were in a little bit of a shock, right? But that's how fast it could happen. That was only a couple weeks ago. I'm thinking, wow. Okay, she was an older lady, but you know, a guy at our church, same church, a lucky guy, Michael and Gaddy. His son, 22, died three months ago from a brain tumor. Death is real. It hits us all, sooner or later. What is the hope of people after death? You know, atheists will promise you nothing. But can they deliver? Atheism will literally promise you there's nothing after. But can they guarantee it? They cannot. And so we're talking about death. Real death. I mean, people die. Right? So let's go back to Genesis and see how this plays into the death question. You know, God had said, every day he had made, he said it was very good. It was very good. So that's the scenario. Yes, it was very good. But things changed after that. The Bible tells us that Adam the only one actually had real free will. He had nobody to blame. He couldn't blame his parents for his actions. He deliberately, willfully chose to disobey and rebel against God. And that, of course, brought sin and, as a consequence, death into the universe. This is what the Bible teaches. Death came as a result of the action of man. It is us who brought death. 
and of course disease and suffering along with that along the world. So there was very good and then it wasn't very good, it was actually very bad. But what then do I do with these, this strata that you see in the geological column, you know, all these things that supposedly died out, as some people say, billions of years ago, do I put that before Adam? And then some people say Adam didn't even exist, but suppose he did exist, then that would have mean that there were things that lived and died and suffered millions of years ago before a hypothetical Adam. Therefore, Adam could not have been the one who brought death into the world. It has been there all along. Which then greatly changes the biblical narrative, doesn't it? Okay. But what if we look and say that no, first it was very good, then it became bad because of Adam's sin, and then that rock strap that we see there, right, took place within the last 6,000 years. Well, that brings a question. Did all of this rock strata, the fossilization, take place in 6,000 years? I mean, doesn't it take millions of years to make a fossil? Doesn't it take millions of years to build up all those layers? I mean, come on, uh, like, whoa, this is different. So the question to be asked is here, when we look at this, um, this rock layer, we ask the question of all this death and disease and suffering in the rock strata, is it true? Well, yes, it is true because that's all encapsulated or snapshotted into the strata. This is true. So who then is responsible for all of this? Who's responsible for all of this death and disease and suffering? Is it God? In fact, that's what theistic evolution would imply. It implied that if God used this process to bring us here, then we can all lay this at the feet of, of God. And specifically because Jesus is clearly declared to be the creator of the universe in John and in, in the in New Testament, then theistic evolutionists would have to have us conclude that it was Jesus Christ himself who over millions and billions of years caused all this suffering and, and pain in, the, in our world, in our universe. Rather than being here a wonderful, loving savior, he would actually be the worst monster that the world would ever have known. That's the end result of theistic evolution, where that you lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ. You are the one who brought this. And isn't this exactly what atheists rail against God at? How can a God bring such suffering into the world? Theistic evolution said, that's our God. Except that that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us explicitly that God had made everything good. It is humans who messed it up. And if there's anyone to be blamed, it's us. We're the ones who have the problem. It's not God. So when we look at the, false, at the, the, the scriptures, it's very good, then became very bad, and then all of those bad things happened as a re afterwards, after Adam's sin, and a lot of it captured in the great flood of Noah, which changed everything, and we're going to look at that, the scientific aspect of that. Well, what about science? I have here a piece of amber with an insect in it. It's an ant. An ant. Right? I picked it up in Tallinn, Estonia. And I noticed it was very smooth on one side and rough on the other side. And I asked the proprietor, who wanted 30 euros for it, I said, uh, how do you get it smooth on the one side? Oh, he says, we, we heat it up. 
And as we heat it up, you know, we get it nice and smooth because it is a resin, it's a, it's a resin, it's an amber. Okay? So I was thinking to myself, well, if you can heat it up, can you get a bunch of amber, put it in a crucible, heat it all up so it's liquid, put an insect in it, let it cool, and say 65 million years old? Yes, you can. In fact, it fools the experts. You look on Wikipedia or you look on the web, you'll find that that's the case. You can fool experts because you cannot date this thing. Okay? I made it yesterday, but it's 65 million years old. Okay. So that's one of the things we're looking at. So, when we talk about the science of this, it's not as if creationists and evolutionists have different facts. We all have the same facts, the fossils and the other evidence. It's how you interpret this. So is it, if you're an atheist, if you're an evolutionist, it must have been evolution. It must have been slow, gradual processes over millions and billions of years, called uniformitarianism. If you're a biblical creationist, you follow the Bible as a historical record of what happened on Earth, you say, yes, there is natural processes. Yes, there is a catastrophe, and has been catastrophe. Noah's flood was a major catastrophe. And you also have supernatural processes. One of the major problems that Christian apologists run into, such as you, Ross, is that he wants to explain supernatural processes using natural processes. The Bible tells us that God spoke, and it was. But he wants to explain it using natural processes. God did not use natural processes. People say, well, can you explain it? Absolutely not. Because God just spoke and it was. I don't understand it. Okay. But God said it. He doesn't have to explain anything to us. We just need to trust that what he said, he did. And that's the faith issue. Okay. So, where do we go from here? Okay, let's look at some specific aspects of it. If you've ever been in the Grand Canyon, it is indeed a Grand Canyon. And they say that the geological column is represented in the strata in the rocks. Right? From the Precambrian. And if you go to Drumheller to the Royal Tyrell Museum, you will, of course, they will make hay out of all of this. It's not really a dinosaur museum. It's an evolutionary propaganda museum. Trying to convince you that all of this happened over millions and, you know, at least half a billion years. That's what it is. a propaganda museum. And uh, it's very effective, actually. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, they will tell you at the interpretation center that this layer, about 6,000 feet, remember that number, 6,000 feet from the top to the bottom, okay, took about 2 billion years to form. 2 billion years to build up all of those layers. And I think, well, as a biblical creation, I don't have billions of years to work with. I've got thousands of years to work with. Can you explain the accumulation of all the strata in less than Two billion years? Absolutely yes. You got to remember that when they see two billion, say two billion years, it's not as if anybody has actually seen this occur. There's no direct evidence. It is inferred from other ideas, such as uniformitarianism. Things happen very, very slowly over a period of time. But it's not as if anybody actually saw any of this. It's just you got to believe this. Why? You don't have to believe it. All right, so let's take a little bit of a, in one of the side canyons, the Deer Creek Trail, 
And you will notice what you have on there are all these very thin lines in the strata. These are called VARs. And you'll very, very tightly fit. Now, based on the, uh, the, the height of the canyon and uh, over the time period, roughly you should have had about one foot or 30 centimeters of this, of these VAR, build up 300,000 years. It took 300,000 years to build up all these fine, fine layers. That's a long time. Two billion years is a very long time. So, what kind of rocks are these? These are sedimentary rocks, which means that they sedimented out of water. All of this was brought here by water. That's what sedimentary rocks are. Okay. So, what's the evolution explanation? Well, you had one year, you had water inundated area, which goes, in some of these strata, go hundreds of miles across the continent, even over to Europe. They go thousands of miles. So one year you had this water come along and lay a very, very thin layer, thousands of miles. And then something, then it dried out. And then you had, a, five, ten years later, you had another thin layer. And then, you get where I'm going with this, okay? It'll take a long time to cover all this. Okay? But it's what you don't see that is telling in this. This was all brought here by water. It's what you don't see that is significant. What you do not see is any evidence of erosion. You know, you've had the flood here in Calgary, right? I went by High River, that church had been flooded out. It makes everything very smooth, right? All that flooding. I don't think so, because it gouges out hills and mountains and valleys and piles dirt here and takes it away there. And yet, they want us to believe that all of these very, very thin layers were laid out in very fine layers with no erosion, no vegetation, no roots, no burrowing animals over billions of years? How is that possible? Well, I suggest it's not possible. Is it any way you can get all this layering here in a very short period of time? Well, the answer is we. So my wife and I are going to go over to um, Missouri. And uh, there's, they have this steamboat. Now, in the Mississippi and the Missouri River, they had these paddle wheelers. They were wooden hulled, and occasionally, some of them got hold. They got an old log, punched a hole in the bottom, and it sank. This particular one, the HMS Arabia, sorry, the uh, steamboat Arabia, was sank and somebody thought, well, we know exactly where it is because it's all charted on the, uh, it's all recorded. Let's go and dig this out and take all this stuff and put it in a museum. They eventually did. You can go there into a museum in Kansas City and um, it's, uh, it, Kansas City, that's where it is. So a guy in, in a number of years ago said, I'm going to find me one of them steamboats and he was looking. Where do you think they found that steamboat? You would have thought in the river. Right? It sank in the river. But it wasn't near the river. It was about half a mile or about a kilometer away from the river. How do you get a steamboat to sink in a farmer's field? Well, that's because the river changed course. Right? It's a meandering river, like Mississippi, Mississippi River. You always have to dredge it out. It changes course quite significantly. So Bob Holly, using a proton mag magnetometer, I have no clue what that is. Anyway, he went to the farmer and said, I found a boat in your field. What? Yeah, it's underneath. Okay, well, the guy says, okay, well, you have one season to get it out. After that, I'm filling it back in and I gotta plow my field again. 
All right, so that's what they did. So they started digging. And here you can see there's a lot of water in there, they're pumping it out, and here you see the remains of the, of the boat. And one of the things you'll notice along the side on the upper right, what do you notice? All of these barbs, all of these strata. It looks a lot like the strata on the Grand Canyon. And yet, how long did it take to get 45 feet? Only 132 years. I got 45 feet in 132 years. And yet it looks exactly the same as Grand Canyon. Well, it's interesting. Is there anything more you have, guys? Yes, there is. So, Mount St. Helens. Anybody have heard of Mount St. Helens? Anybody been there? It was a blast, literally. It was a mountain that exploded in 1980 uh, with the force of 1,600 times the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Winds 250 miles an hour, blasted trees flat, 10 miles away. They all knew it was coming. People didn't think it was going to happen and got killed in the process. I wonder if there's other people were told that a catastrophe is coming and just didn't pay attention, thought it wasn't going to affect them. Well, it's an example. Here's Mount St. Helens today. Literally, the top is gone. As you see, it would have, it's a snow-capped mountain. And uh, it was a dormant volcano. And of course, it blew up. And what happens is that it, material in the background, I'm looking for a Point. But you can see in the background there, it piled up the dirt from the mountain in pyroclastic flows. There's actually a DVD on that, an excellent DVD, about 600 feet or 200 meters of dirt and rock was laid out in that 1980 by that water mountain coming down. Well, in 1982, there was another eruption, and you can see the dome in the middle, the rest of the remains of that 1982 eruption. So what was on the mountain in 1982, of course all the snow melted and all the rock came down with the lava, came down and it gouged a canyon in the material that was laid down two years earlier. So you can see the ridge at the top, it was laid down in 1980. You can see the canyon laid down in 1982. Now if you didn't know the history, you know, this looks an awful lot like the Grand Canyon, smaller scale, but it looks like the Grand Canyon. If you didn't know the history, and you came up there with your wife, Martha, or husband, Bob, right? You said, Martha, how long did it take that there river to carve this canyon? And she would say, well, you know, Bob, it's just a little river, and it's going to take just a little bit of material. So it's going to take millions of years to carve this canyon. But you'd be asking the wrong question, because the river did not carve the canyon. How do we know? Well, we saw it. We knew what happened, right? So this whole canyon was taken out in one year. And it's interesting to note the sides of the canyon that were laid down in 1980, if you look very closely, you can see, you can see a lot of strata, a lot of varves. That was all laid out in 1980 itself. In one day, we had over 20 feet in one day. So if I get 20 feet in one day, how many feet could I get in 300 days? About 6,000 feet, which seems to be very similar to the depth of the Grand Canyon. Okay. So if people say to you, no, I, the, the, since these are sedimentary rock, all I need is some way of carrying a lot of dirt and rocks, etc., using a lot of water all over the earth 
Can you think of any historical event which would have moved a lot of dirt using a lot of water all over the earth? That's right, folks, the flood of Noah's day. I watched a movie. Actually, I didn't watch it, but I thought I read it in a book. It's a good book. This would give you enough energy and force to actually make this. So when you think about this, if somebody says, you have the Grand Canyon, they're two billion years, and you say, well, how do you know? Nobody saw it. You don't know. You just believe that. Okay? But I can get the same amount of, I can get the same effect in a very short period of time. HMS Arabia, Mount St. Helens are good observed scientific evidence to say that your two billion years are washed up. The pun in there somewhere. What about these uh, folded sedimentary rocks? How do you fold and bend rock? Here is 90 degree bends. Here's a place, I'm not exactly sure it is, but you'll notice the car, the truck on the bottom. So we're talking a lot of rock, which were bent 90 degrees. How do you bend rock 90 degrees? You can't bend rock 90 degrees. I got that the slide on the way from, uh, you know, when rock gets bent, it fractures. And there's no evidence of fracturing on compression or tension fractures here. What it looks like is that all of these layers were one time laid out horizontal, but before they could actually harden into solid rock, they were bent up 90 degrees, which means they must have been in some kind of a plastic or plasmic state to allow them to bend. Well, that would mean that you'd have to have some kind of plates, tectonic forces, you know, pushing against each other. One subducts, goes underneath, the other one pushes up and pushes these rock layers up, which is kind of what you would have in the global flood of Noah. Continental plates would go under each other, others would be pushed up, and you would have tsunamis all over the place, and you would have mountains sticking up very high into the sky. You know, people have said, "Where? How did Mount? You know, in the flood? This is one argument. Actually, in a science, in a biblical encyclopedia, the guy confessed that the global flood he historically had always been considered to be, you know, the flood. No, global, all around the world. But he didn't think so. Why? Now he's a scholar. Right? He's got a master or a doctorate or something. He didn't think so because he says the water, Mount uh, Mount Everest, is twenty-nine thousand feet high." How are you going to get enough water near it to go over Mount Everest? His big mistake is he didn't go to creation.com and put in Mount Everest. Because anybody who's climbed Mount Everest will tell you it's very high up, right? But it also has marine fossils within 200 feet of the top. Well, what are marine fossils doing on the 29,000 feet minus 200? Well, what that tells us is that at one time, Mount Everest, the top, was only 200 feet above sea level. And those fossils were then pushed up along with the mountain, 29,000 feet above sea level. He thought the mountains were there before the flood, but he didn't realize that the mountains were a result of the flood. He has a big argument published in an uh, encyclopedia, but really, uh, you should have done his homework. You know, we're talking about fossils. How long does it take to make a fossil? Well, Charles Darwin himself thought that it took millions of years to form a fossil. 
So you wouldn't have anything which doesn't have bones becoming fossilized, like a jellyfish or an octopus or something like that. You said it can't happen because fossilization takes you know, millions of years. In fact, that's what's still taught in schools. You know, a fish dies, sinks to the bottom, takes millions of years of being covered, and then it will eventually turn into a fossil. But has anybody ever seen this? Actually, no. Certainly nobody's seen it over millions of years. But can fossilization happen in a very short period of time? Well, actually, yes. Surprisingly. So here's some examples of things that have turned into fossils. Now, what is a fossil? A fossil is something that's been turned into a rock. Whether it be the actual bone itself, through permineralization, has been converted into a rock, or it has been compressed like a tree, petrified, or it can simply be an impression of whatever it was, such as a leaf. The leaf is long gone, but you still have the impression of the leaf in the rock. So when you split the rock, you see a leaf. This is a fossil of a leaf. Okay? It's just turning something into a rock. So how long? Now, do you think this was Fred Flintstone's car's key? Right? I don't think so. Right? Obviously, these things are rock. Must have taken a very short, within recent several hundred years at best. Okay? So, one of my sons got a PhD from Cambridge in math. <clears throat> And as parents who live vicariously through their children, uh, we're, my wife and I are very uh, proud of his efforts. It's almost like I got a peep. I, I went to Cambridge as well. Yes, I got the hoodie. <laughs> so it gave, us a, it gave us an opportunity to go and visit a place called Mother Shipton, northwest of York. And Mother Shipton has this, what they call a petrifying well. Not really scary but it does turn things into rock. If, for example, they will hang things in the waterfall, high mineral content, for a number of months, and they'll put things in there like these hats, and these shoes, and uh, even these soft teddy bears. And these soft teddy bears, over three months, turn into rock. So how long does it take to fossilize something? Well, it could be as short as three months. Not so cuddly anymore. It's pretty heavy too. Okay, you can see it afterwards if you like. Okay, so that's that's concrete evidence that it will take uh, very short. You know, I did that on Friday night. Everybody's looking at me. Like, Tough crowd. You know, I mentioned that Charles Darwin thought that nothing could be with an invertebrate without a, without bones could be fossilized. Well, he was wrong. I see him wrong in a lot of things. Okay. Here we have a fossilized octopus, okay? And allegedly 95 million years old, but the lady there was able to reconstitute the ink and actually draw a picture of the octopus. That's what you see on the top right. Okay. That's amazing. And we have, of course, fossilized uh, jellyfish. And uh, uh, now, if you've ever seen a jellyfish on the beach, jellyfish, how long, if you come back the next day, you see a nice formed jellyfish? it starts to turn into mush. Right? That's very long. So whatever caused this to turn into a fossil must have been within a matter of days. Otherwise the jellyfish would have been totally decomposed and you wouldn't have any kind of a good impression afterwards. And, and here we have an example of ichthyosaur, marine reptile, in the process of giving birth. You've heard about long labors. Well, this isn't one of them. Okay. Obviously, the mother with a prostate birth was inundated with water and, uh, and mud and stuff, and then it became uh, turned into a fossil. Must have happened very quickly because the baby didn't have time to be born. And at the bottom one, you'll see the fish, of which we have billions of fossils. 
right? The fish must have been preserved within a matter of hours because you see no decay or any, or any animal eating it, etc. You see the, the ribs and the fine and the fins, etc. As if it was snap, you know, uh, freeze-dried. Uh, freeze <laughs> freeze you know, water came along and just pancaked this thing and just captured it like that. And that's what we have. So fossilization can even be almost instantaneous. This is not from a creation source, this is from a secular source. So here we have a fossil of a fern. A fern, of course, is a plant, and when plants die, they start to wilt and wither very shortly, and then they start to decay, etc. Just look in the back of your fridge every now and then, and you'll, you'll know they, this is an experiment you can try at home, kids. And uh, your parent won't see. But it was so fast that it actually captured the uh, genetic material inside the cell. That's how fast it was snapped. In fact, new scientists would push this out, which is a secular uh, organization, admitted almost instantly fossilized. This is a secular organization that said that fossilization can happen almost instantly. It doesn't matter the time, it matters the conditions. Now I dispute his how he thinks this happened, was suddenly engulfed by a lava flow. I don't know if you saw that Hawaii volcano a number of years ago where the lava was coming up to this car and the, within feet away from the car it burst into flame. The heat was intense. What do you think it's going to do to a fern with that much heat? It's just going to burn it into crisp. So I don't think the scenario the guy postulated was sensical. All right, so why do I have to believe that fossilization takes millions of years when we actually have observed this taking place almost instantly. So there's a number of things also. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, organic material in dinosaur bones. Anybody not heard of it? How many have heard of it? How many don't have arms? They <laughs> 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 don't want to commit themselves the other way. So in 2005, a Dr. Mary Schweitzer was digging through some unfossilized Tyrannosaurus rex bone, a femur. And as she was digging through that, she uncovered organic material. Actually, it was on ABC News. There was a segment on it where they were explaining to her these were flexible, resilient, returned to its original shape. And she said, you know, when you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know say it should be gone, it should be degraded completely. We agree with her 100%. And she says that they are virtually indistinguishable from tissues from modern samples, or modern species. Now when she first published this in 2005, when she presented this scientific community, they all said, Dr. Schweitzer, <laughs> we know that organic material cannot last 65 million years ago, or, uh, old, because dinosaurs died out that long ago, so it can't be that old. You must have some, some uh, contamination in your laboratory, some biofilms or something, that Dr. Schweitzer, come on, seriously. We can't accept that, that could, these are 65 million years old. Okay, so she spent the next 10 years going through her experiments, trying time and time again to actually falsify her own experiments, which is exactly what good scientists should try to do, to try and falsify their own experiments. And if it comes out the same all the time, then you've got a pretty good case for what you're doing, which she did. And 10 years later, 2015, she came out with the scientific community, hey, listen, folks, I've done every protocol in the lab conceivable. It comes out the same. These is, this is Tyrannosaurus rex, red blood cell organic material. Looks like modern stuff. And they begrudgingly accepted it. 
with this one caveat. Guess what? Organic material can last 65 million years. How ironic. Ten years earlier you said, that's absolutely impossible. But now they say, oh, it must be able to last 65 million years. And it's actually going up to 450 million years. Why? Because the alternative for them is unpalatable. And the unpalatable part of it is that dinosaurs did not die out 65 million years ago, but only thousands of years ago, which if you are an objective observer, when, you, when you're a forensic scientist and somebody gives you some undecayed organic material, you're not immediately going to say, well, it must be millions of years old. You're going to think, well, it's relatively recent. The less it's decayed, the more recent it is, which is the obvious conclusion. But they could not accept it because that would mean their whole entire theory has gone up in smoke. And they make a lot of money, research grants out of it. They can't afford to let that go. A few other things. Uh, what time is it? I can't. I have to turn this on. Is more time, Pastor? Yeah. Uh, but I, you don't, Pastor. Are you Pastor? Depends on the day. Oh, okay. Well, we'll call this guy here, says it's okay. I met him the first time today, so I don't Okay, another one, which I, I, I like this one because it's fairly easy to grasp. We have a lot of people on the earth today, roughly 7 billion people. And um, so obviously the population is going to go up. In the last 100 years or so, population has been skyrocketing. China had 480 million people in the late 1940s, now it's over 1.3 billion. And at that, that's, you know, it doesn't take much to double, so in the next number, of, we're gonna have lots and lots of people. So if I have seven billion people here, how do I explain how long it took to get that many people on Earth? So if I'm an evolutionist, and I believe that what they're telling us, that we came from ape-like ancestor over seven million years, then I'm going to say, let's say, just take a million years, just for rounding it out, that you, Homo homosexual, or humans have been around for a million years. So if I'm wearing that hat, I'm going to say, well, about a million years ago, you had two people-like people, -like people uh, happened to like each other, and they started having children, okay? And so it would take about a million years with ups and downs to get seven billion here today. That's one argument take. The other one is a biblical creation thing. Well, I don't have billion, I don't have millions of years to work with. I've got, well, let's say the flood it happened 4,500 years ago, and uh, we all are descended from Noah's children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so we're, there was only three couples who started having kids, and uh, in 4,500 years, are we going to have seven billion people? Is that possible? You understand what I'm asked the question here? And if you're the jury, and one guy say, no, 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 take a million years to get that many people. Biblical creationist says, no, 4,500 years to get seven billion. Which one is true? Which one is more likely? Now, you can never prove any of these things because nobody actually saw any of this happen. But based on what we know about how the world works and what we know about science, which side would you lean towards? Well, that's a good question. So how do you deal with that? Well, one thing you, you go to is look at demographic, population statistics. So I went on the BBC, not the Better Bible Company, but the British Broadcasting Corporation, and I found this page here. I thought, this is very interesting. So you have 7 billion, which is off to the right, actually it's off the clock on the right. I put the cross on there when you know 2,000 years of, of, of soul, uh, when Christ lived, 
And about 4,500 years ago, there's a dip. Voila, le dip. Okay. What happened about 4,500 years ago? Quite a flood of Noah, right? which would have decimated all the populations of great people. But what I really found striking was that BBC, a secular news source, said that about 6,000 years ago, there was only, well, there's next to nobody. BBC has endorsed the biblical account of world history. I thought, that's very interesting. I like this. I'm going to use this. Okay. But I thought about it a bit more. If creation happened not 6,000 years ago, but let's say 7,000 years ago, only 1,000 years earlier, you will notice this exponential growth on the right here. If I shifted this chart over 1,000 years to the left, how many people would be here today? I don't mean in this building. Okay? On the earth. Now this is not possible. Okay? But how many people would be attending to wars? Roughly 450 billion people. So that begs the question, how come there's only 7 billion? When if it was, we've been here for a long, long, long time. How come we're only 7 billion? So how would evolutionists attack this? Well, they would say, well, you know, a million years ago, there were two people who liked each other. They started reproducing, but then a catastrophe happened and they all got died out. But there were two people left happened to live very close, and they found each other, they liked each other, and they happened to have children. And then the population increased again, and then it all wiped out. And then there were two people who happened to like each other, just happened to be in the same vicinity, and they had kids again, right? So this would have been happening time and time again, extinction event, extinction event, and just so happened that they all happened to like each other after that, right? which begs beggars belief because where's the, where's the evidence? Where's the remains of these quadrillions of humans that would have lived? Zero. So based on what BBC is telling kids in England, and based on what we know about demographics, I suggest to you the burden of proof is on the evolutionists to explain why we only have seven billion people on the earth today. This fits in well with the biblical account. Okay, we're going to skip over carbon-14. So let me just jump here a bit. I have lots of stuff here. Carbon-14 and diamonds. I'll just break very short. Carbon-14, it decays 50, 60,000 years, there's none left. Okay, it doesn't mean it's that old, it just means that there should none, no, none be there after 50, 60,000 years. We're finding carbon-14 in diamonds, on the deep earth, in the earth, we're finding carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. It should not be there if dinosaur bones are more than, you know, millions of years old. Right? Why are we finding this stuff? We're finding it in all the strata in the rock. We're finding carbon-14. Certain processes, we're also told, take millions of years to form. Now, in Alberta, you have oil. How long does it take to form the oil underground? Well, millions of years. Anybody see that? No. Well, actually, it can take an hour. That's right, folks. You can get crude oil from algae in an hour. In fact, there's a, a guy, you check on the internet, there's a guy in the States who's actually farming algae with the intent of converting it into crude oil. 
He hasn't found a way to do it economically yet, but he's attempting to do it because it's just a process. All you have to do is get the right condition, then you can turn algae into crude oil. Fascinating. And stalagmites and stalactites. Anybody been spelunking? Spelunking is cave exploration, right? So they tell you those stalactites and stalagmites don't touch them because they take thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to form. I say, come on. Nobody saw hundreds of thousands of years. You're just making that up. And I said, by the way, in Montreal, we have these as well. We have these in our sewers. Right? In fact, if you go to the Montreal Tourism website, they will actually explicitly say, some of the century-old tunnels have been completely transformed by stalactites and stalagmites, making them look more like an alien world than old sewer. You can see one in outlined in red, top to bottom. How long did it take to form? Less than 200 years. So when somebody says it took several hundred thousand years to form, come on, you're just reading off a card somebody gave you. Right? Nobody saw this. So why do I have to believe these are hundreds of thousands of years old? I'm just going to do something here. I, there's, there's lots of evidence of this, and we don't have time for all this stuff. So let me give you one here that you can... Uh, how I deal with that when I see something that comes up. How do you approach it? And what are the... What, what you need to go through your mind to try to help clarify something? Because a lot of times you're... You're, somebody's throwing stuff at you and then you're, how do I think about this? How do I process this? I, I want to remain faithful to the scripture and the timing in there, therein, but how do I process it in my head to make sense out of it all? So here's one website that came in, Naturalis Historia. The uh, title caught my eye. The Nika Cave of Crystals is a giant problem for a young earth. And he says that, wow, you know, initial estimates, hundreds of thousands, not millions of years. All I looked at it said, whoo, how do, I, uh, how do I deal with that? If they are hundreds of thousands and millions of years, then obviously the biblical account of history is not valid. But I thought, well, you know, what, what are the assumptions that this guy is making? So I did some more digging and I went to BBC. And they said, well, this... Now these are crystals in a deep cave, in a deep mine. They were mining and of course there's water in the mines, they gotta pump it out. And as they were pumping out the mine, they found these gypsum crystals. Huge! Okay, and uh, here you can see the guy in the middle there, and uh, BBC said on this, 26 million years ago, you say it with a deep voice, it makes more impression, right? Very slowly, over hundreds of thousands of years, did anybody see this happen? No. It's just an assumption on their part. Here you can see, this reminds me of kind of like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Right, look at those crystals, 65 feet long. You see the guy there, he's in a suit. It's a little warm, it's 58 degrees Celsius. Right? They even said that when the water goes back in, they start growing again. Amazing crystal. So here's a guy here. How do I make sense of that? What are the assumptions happening here? Number one, nobody ever saw this crystal form. It's deep underground, right? So. Actually, how long does it take the crystals to form? Well, you can actually go, if you go on the web, you can, there are crystal growing contests that you can enter. All you have to do is do this. Oops, sorry, back up. And here. That's right, folks. You just do this really fast, and you dink, dunk it into this uh, solution, and overnight, 
you have crystals. And then you can turn it into, um, you know, you can paint it, whatever you like with that. You can make it into an ashtray, I mean, a, a kettle a lamp holder. And, uh, so that's a fair amount of crystals in a very overnight. Well, the UCLA wanted a crystal as well for some of their experiments. So they thought, we're going to grow us some crystals. This is the crystal they grew. How long did it take? Two months. And I suggest it was about, let's say, two feet in two months. That's roughly a foot a month. How long for 60 feet of crystal? 60 months. That's five years, folks. This is based on observed scientific evidence. So if someone says to you, well, no, take crystal growing takes, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. I said, I don't think so. Because we can observe crystals. We can actually make crystals of this size in two months. So why then do I have to believe these are hundreds of thousands or millions of years old? I do not. So, now I've thrown a lot at you and I could give a lot more, but it's just the same stuff. You're not going to remember me, you're not going to remember my name, and I'm sure you're not going to remember a lot of what I say, uh, what I've presented here today. Maybe some impression. So, it's good stuff. But unless you use it and continue to study more, it's all going to filter away. I've been in training for 40 years, and we train guys, uh, mechanics on business aircraft, and we say if you haven't used it in a year, you better come back because you've forgotten pretty much everything. And the same for you, right? You just gotta remember, oh, I had some impression, I don't remember what it said, but it's something about this, ah. So you need to keep, we have resources downstairs, books and DVD, wonderful stuff, some you can read, and some you can carry uh, you know, as resources that you can look at later. But we also have a magazine that it's written exactly for people like yourselves, and like me, it's called Creation Magazine. And it comes out every three months, it's on a subscription service, and so you have, um, it comes out like Netflix, so every three months you're going to pay only $7.50, over the course of a year it's only $30. And you get a hard copy version, a real paper one, go figure. You also get a digital version of the five devices which you can share. And uh, you also have, uh, uh, let me say that, you, if you sign up today, you get a free magazine and you also get a free DVD. And you pay nothing today. So I'm going to ask distributed clipboards on it and so you're it's a tear-off form and um, uh, Stuart Stuart okay he's going to have them passed around okay. and it kind of works like this you put your personal information on name address telephone number all that stuff and then you uh, fill on the back side now you either go into your checking account so we need a void check or, uh, or information on it or credit card information and then you sign it, you tear it off, bring it down to Stuart, he'll give you your magazine and your DVD. Okay. I highly recommend it. It's kind of like, how do I eat an elephant? First of all, it's illegal to eat elephants, but if you happen to have an elephant, you gotta eat it, you eat it a bite small, a one bite at a time. And a lot of this, for so many people, this is a lot of stuff. So Creation Magazine gives you that bite at a time. And what are the type of things that you can get in Creation Magazine? Well, one we'd like to show is these twins. That's right. One girl is black, the other one is white. 
So how many races do they represent? But if you didn't know they were twins, you would think, well, this one girl's from the black race and this one's well, from the white race, right? But it's impossible. They, they're twins. How could they be two different races? Okay. Their parents were brown, which makes sense from uh, Mendelian genetics that their parents would have had the genetic coding for skin color all the way from very black to very white. And that's probably why Adam and Eve were brown in color not white. And they would have this continue. I can imagine these girls had a blast in school. This is my sister. Get out. And I said, it's my twin. How, how, how is that possible? Well, this is what you get in Creation Magazine. And lots more besides. Okay. We also have 60 of the most often asked questions on creation and evolution. And uh, this is for somebody who wants a resource. Oh yeah, there was a question. like like. I remember one of our speakers was saying, this guy was interested in becoming, his wife dragged him to a talk. Right? He went, okay, I got gold. So he said, you know, I, I would become a Christian except I have one question. If you can answer that question, I'll become a Christian. So he came to the speaker and asked the question. And the speaker said, okay. And he answered his question. And he said, oh, okay. That's all. You want to know what his question was? Okay, if you don't want to know. <laughs> it was, where did Cain get his wife? Where did Cain get his wife? You know, Adam and Eve, they had Cain and Abel and then Seth. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister. Could have married his sister. His sister. And the law of Moses forbade that. But uh, you think about Abraham. Who did Abraham marry? Sarah was his half sister. Right? So it was not it, it wasn't immoral or illegal at that time. And uh, later on, because of genetic issues, it became God said, "Don't don't do this anymore." For those of you who uh, want the scientific stuff, okay, you don't want any Bible stuff on there. You just want the scientific stuff. Well, our PhD scientists have put together this evolution of Achilles heel. It's an excellent. There's a book. It's a solid material, and there's also a DVD that comes with it. And I think I have one pack left where you get both at the same time. Actually, I'm not sure how many of these DVDs I have left. Okay, excellent material. You say, somebody says, I don't believe in religion, I believe in science. Oh, really? I just happen to have a DVD or a book that you might read, because we believe in science. Actually, evolution is not really science. Okay. And our Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, this is guy's a brilliant man. He wrote a lot of the books downstairs. And uh, he did a book on demolishing uh, Richard Dawkins on evolution. So all this stuff. And for some of you who just want entry level, this book here is Refuting Evolution. I have one left. Okay, so get that. You know, I remember a pastor in, uh, I was speaking in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he said to me, okay, Gus, suppose at the end of your talk, Everybody was convinced. Six days creation, the Bible's true. Okay? He said, so what? Actually, I was a little taken aback because that's why I'm here. Right? He says, but he said, so what? People used to believe this anyway, several hundred years ago. Everybody believed the Bible was historically true and Genesis, God created everything. He says, so what? And I thought about it. I said, you know, that's, that's actually a valid point. 
Creation Ministry International does not exist just so that you can learn about the scientific case for creation, but that you can understand what the Bible's message really is, is that God created us perfect. We fell in sin, in rebellion against God, that's why we're dying. That's why human dies. But what is the hope for humanity? Well, there's only one hope. In fact, there's only one religion that will bring you to God, and that's Christianity. Islam will not bring you to God. God is not in paradise. Okay? It's only Christianity. In fact, it's only Jesus Christ will bring you to God. And what he has done is to pay for your sin so that you can have eternal life. And God is offering amnesty. It's his amnesty program. You can get right by me by accepting what I have done for you. In a sense, Jesus is like the ark. Those people, a lot of people didn't believe Noah, but Noah was, had the ark. He said, come on in. If you, if you come into the ark, you're going to be saved. He said, no, no, we're going to be okay. They weren't. The same thing for 2,000 years, the church had been saying, you need Christ in order to be saved. One day he's going to come back, and uh, we need to be in that ship, which is Christ Jesus. So I'm going to leave that here, and uh, God bless you all. Thank you.